0: Fired Up show starts right now. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for joining me here on the Fired Up podcast right here on WJMS Media. We appreciate your joining each and every episode. Uh, we're going to jump right into it. We've got a couple of big things I want to talk about this episode. Uh, but as always, we'll start it off with checking in with our coronavirus update. Uh, We are currently at 80 million cases roughly in the U.S. 977,000 people have unfortunately died from the disease and 558 million people have received vaccination. Now, some uh, news headlines uh, relating to COVID uh, news has started to surface of yet another variant that is beginning to show up in some areas of the country. This one is an offshoot of the Omicron variant, Uh, it is designated as BA2 uh, and uh, apparently it is as rapid spreading as Omicron was in the last go around uh, and we're still uh, in the very very early stages of it so we don't have a whole lot of data and statistics about infection rate and hospitalization rates and so forth but it is part of what is showing up in the hospitals in terms of patients with recorded covid disease so you know obviously that means uh we need to keep an eye on this and the possibility is uh i'd say likely but i'm not a doctor uh, that we will see uh, surges in various areas of the country revolving around this new ba2 variant in other related COVID news, uh, the CDC has uh, indicated that they are uh, in favor of a fourth uh, injection of uh, vaccine, uh, or basically a second booster, uh, for the COVID uh, pandemic, and they are targeting that people over fifty and with you know the usual. Uh, conditions uh, of concern should be very seriously considering getting uh, this updated or this fourth shot Um, you know it does have an impact on the disease it is effective and most importantly it reduces drastically the hospitalization rate as well as uh, reduces greatly the death rate from the COVID disease So we will keep an eye on uh, the progress of the VA2 variant. We will also keep an ear out for news and updates about the uh, latest rounds of vaccinations or boosters. And uh, we'll bring that to you as we learn them. Uh, Of course, you know, our advice to everyone out there is make sure that you're vaccinated. Get your, you know, your first booster shot. And if you're eligible to get the second booster, uh, check with your doctor and I'd say go forward with that. All right. Um, So moving off of COVID and uh, we're going to get into a couple of subjects on this show. Uh, The first one I want to talk about was actually one that I intended to uh, to lead with last week when I released the podcast. But unfortunately, uh, I got sick. Uh, No, it was not COVID, Um, I tested twice during the time frame that I was sick, came back negative both times, thank God, and it really was just a really bad cold, but it impacted my voice uh, and just made it so that I barely could get out of bed for four or five days, but I'm back and my voice is back and we're ready to, to move forward. So the topic I wanted to bring up last week was based on a news item. I heard uh, a report that was being discussed about the current status of votes revolving around repealing uh, Roe v. Wade and uh, Casey v. Planned Parenthood, uh, basically, which would make a federal uh, funding for abortion and you know legal abortions illegal in this country. And I, I listened to, you know, what was being talked about. And, you know, I am someone who believes that, you know, it is a, a woman's uh, right to choose what happens with her body. Uh, I don't think that legislating has any place in it. Uh, but the other point that it brought to mind, and, I, and it, it started me on a very, very deep uh, thought process on this, was what would happen, just for instance, what would happen if Roe versus Wade, if legal protections for uh, abortions in this country were removed? Uh, basically, if we went back to the way things were before 1973, when uh, the, the Roe v. Wade decision was announced and abortions became protected uh, under the Constitution. Uh, and I, I thought a lot about that from a lot of different angles. Uh, most, most critical to me and, and most important to me, uh, and, and I'll get into the reasons why for this in a second, was what would happen... To the children who would be born as a result of no access to legal abortion services in this country, and you know it—that really kind of spun me around. Uh, and you know, I, I will, will tell you that my my concerns about this uh, run into you know very personal concerns, um, considering the fact that. I am an adopted child uh, I am a child of an unwed interracial couple and was not able to be brought back home by my biological mother and therefore was placed into adoption uh, right after I was born and I was adopted three months later by the the marvelous people who raised me and who I call mom and dad and um, So, you know, as I talk about this, understand that, you know, I I have a stake in this from a personal standpoint. Also, keep in mind that um, I am the father of two daughters. I have two granddaughters, uh, numerous nieces, and, you know, I I am concerned about their future going forward in a, a country where uh, there is no protections for their right to choose what happens to their bodies, so you know I'm I'm vested in this. That this is not just a political subject for me. Um, so I, I dug into it and did some num you know looked up some numbers. Uh, on average, and you know this is per sources, uh, from Planned Parenthood, there are some three hundred and fifty thousand abortions. Uh, performed in this country year over year. Um, since since Roe v. Wade was enacted into law in 1973, uh, the numbers say there's been more than 43 million abortions performed. Um, there are also currently 117,500 uh, or more children who are already uh, in the in the queue waiting to be adopted. So I thought about this and asked the question, if there were no abortions and and caveat by saying the elimination of the federal protection is not going to eliminate the practice of uh, aborting pregnancies, uh, both for for medical reasons and medical necessity, but also for, you know, just personal preference reasons. Essentially, as I said, we're going to go back to the way it was uh, in pre-1973. Um, And, you know, that, that 350,000 number, if we just say, you know, half of them, you know, half of those, those uh, pregnancies that went to term, uh, those children were not able to remain with their biological parents and were placed into adoption. So that's going to add another 175,000 children a year. Into the abort, into the adoption system in this country, what's that going to mean? Well, in the United States right now, we spend four point three billion dollars on administration and and servicing of the adoption industry in this country, and again, that's for you know 100, 111 point uh, or I'm sorry one hundred seventeen point uh, five um, thousand children per year. Uh, so if we're adding another one hundred and seventy five thousand or basically, you know, two and a quarter percent more, um, two and a quarter times that number into the system, uh, that industry is going to to swell to be a nine or ten billion dollar expenditure that you know we, the taxpayers of this country, are going to have to cover. Um, you know, and, and I said again, that's just based on if it's half. If it's more, you know, you can do the math. If it's more than that, less than that, whatever. The the key point here is I have heard and, and we've all heard over the years since Roe became law of the land, you know, arguments and discussions and debates and 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 protests and fights and and speeches and everything about the side of the abortion uh Industry, the abortion process from the standpoint of the mother. And that's important. Do not get me wrong on that. Uh, We need to have those discussions and continue to discuss, you know, about how we best care for, you know, uh, women in that situation. But you almost never, and I, I went back and looked to see if there were news articles. Or, you know, uh, uh, broadcasts or interviews that talked about what happens to the children uh, of parents or or of mothers who do not wish to keep that baby, yet have to take that baby to term and give birth. What happens to those children? Where do they go? Are they the ones that end up in the adoption uh, world? Uh, I imagine they are to some extent but you know there are statistics out there that talk about the 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 uh, number of children that are born into that circumstance and their likelihood to go on to further their education their likelihood to end up on the streets uh in a life of crime you know uh, abused neglected um you know and and so forth and so on and those numbers Astronomically high. So, if we eliminate a, the the outlet, uh, as as painful as it is, if we eliminate the outlet of ending an an unwanted pregnancy, or you know, ending a pregnancy that is uh, beneficial to both the mother and to you know the the potential infant if we bring those children out into society we as society are going to have to figure out what are we going to do with them you know are they you know going to be you know uh raised in you know in foster care are we going to reinstitute you know uh, uh, foundling orphanages are we going to you know re-institutionalize these children into you know dormitories and and care for them and clothe them and educate them and and socialize them and, and all of the elements that go into raising a child are we as the american society going to take that on i haven't heard any discussion anywhere on that point And uh, again, I bring my personal background into it Uh, there, but for the grace of two wonderful people who I love dearly, um, you know, and and my mother, rest her soul, and my father, who who is nearly 99 years old, and I'm blessed to still have him in my life Um, there, but for the grace of those two marvelous people, go I, you know, what would my life be different how would it be different you know what would i be doing if you know in and it just goes on and on and on and on and you know while i was was sick i i had a lot of time to think about that and the the conclusions i come to you know are several you know if we are going to stop the process of you know, getting rid of, of unwanted um, pregnancies, whether it's, and in particular, you know, in these cases, you know, of rape or incest um, or, you know, assault or, you know, in these, these circumstances, if we are going to end that, what are we going to do and who is going to take care of all of these additional children that are going to enter the system? Um, you know, I, I've had... Discussions with people and have, you know, half-heartedly suggested that we ought to have a, a registration list and for those people who are so adamantly against abortion that we would assign them uh, a, a child that they, air quotes, saved uh, for them to raise. If you're going to, you know, stand in the way of, of the process, then, you know, perhaps you should... Um, you should bear the, the responsibility of that child that you have assisted in bringing into the world, um, you know, and we can have discussion about that. I, I wholeheartedly want to get opinion and feedback on that. Send an email, firedupradio at yahoo.com. I want to hear what you think uh, is the the outcomes that would come from, you know, the elimination of the legal protections of, uh, the the abortion rights of women as we have them now, um, you know, and it, it's it's a difficult discussion. I mean, it's even difficult for me uh, to to talk about this and and try and maintain some level of, of distance and objectivity because it, it's it's part of my story, um, but. The, the, the real and hard fact is that, you know, if this federal protection goes away, we are going to add, you know, thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of children into our foster care system, into uh, our adoption system, where we're already 117,000 children deep in the line waiting to be adopted. And there are, you know, many thousands of children every year who age out of the system. When they hit 18, they're no longer a ward of the state. They are now an, an independent adult. Have we properly educated them? Have we properly uh, prepared them to enter in society? Have we given them uh, things that they can see as goals and aspirations? Uh, and, and are we prepared to greatly expand that effort. So, you know, it's one thing to talk about eliminating federal protections for uh, uh, terminating unwanted pregnancies. It's another thing to, to, to deal with eliminating federal protections for unwanted pregnancies and then taking up the task of addressing what happens with the children that are then born. Now, obviously, you know, presented with their child with no alternative, there, you know, hopefully there would be the the overwhelming majority of these mothers would opt to keep and raise their children as best they can. But realize that one of the reasons why women have abortions is that they can't adequately care. For these children, maybe they have, you know, a a number of children already and, you know, they just they just can't support having another child in their family. That that's a legitimate concern. But, you know, if they are being forced to bring this present pregnancy to its completion um, by society and by the government, then at least to my way of thinking, we owe them. Some We owe those children some additional care, support, and whatever else they need in order for them to, to have the best life possible, uh, as, as any of us would expect and as any parent would hope uh, who has you know, brought a, a son or daughter into the world. The one thing you want more than anything else, and again, I'm a parent, I can speak to this from truth. The one thing you hope for more than anything else for that child is that you have done everything you can to prepare them to be uh, an adult and contributor to this world. So as we continue with the discussions about what's to become of Roe versus Wade and Casey, uh, one of the things I think we need to also include in that discussion And one of the points we should be communicating, as always, with our elected officials is, okay, what's going to happen to the children that are born when this protection goes away? What are we, the Society of the United States, going to do for these new citizens uh, who are born into this country? uh, And how are we going to take care of them, raise them, support them? And, and give them their opportunity to uh, obtain the American dream. So and that, that was something that I spent a lot of time thinking about. Um, and, and the fact that you know, we're looking at you know, $6,900 per child in the adoption system now and that we're going to add you know, hundreds of thousands of additional children into that system a year, uh, when there's, there's no more legal abortions, and again, air quotes around that, um, is, is a discussion worth having with your elected officials. Find out what they think should happen. You know, who should raise these children? What if the, the biological mother and or father uh, aren't able to raise these children? I mean, we see this now. What are we going to do? When this this problem is exacerbated by an order of magnitude, because there is no way to to um, to end a pregnancy that would lead to nothing but suffering for you know a child and a mother, um, and we can argue you know the, the politics of um, you know of pro-choice, um, pro-life. We can argue. In fact, we've been arguing that back and forth since 1973, and we will likely continue that argument. But there's one element that, as I said, I have not heard um, discussed to any any great extent: what happens to the children that are born when a a pregnancy termination is not available? What happens to those children? Uh, and I think that's a conversation that we need to have. So, as I said, if you want to weigh in on your with your opinion, send an email to the show at firedupradio at yahoo.com. I'd love to get your thoughts and your feedback uh, on both sides. You know, pro-choice, pro-life. I'd love to hear what you think and particularly what you think we need to do for the children that are being born. All right. All right, um, let's take a quick break and we'll come back with more of the podcast right after this brief announcement.
1: If you are sick with COVID-19 or think you might have it, stay home except to get medical care. Monitor your symptoms. If your symptoms get worse, contact your doctor. Get rest and stay hydrated. Avoid public transportation, ride sharing, or taxis and take these six steps to protect others. Wear a mask over your mouth and nose if you must be around other people. Cover your mouth and nose with a tissue when you cough or sneeze. Clean your hands often with soap and water or use hand sanitizer, especially after coughing or sneezing. As much as possible, stay in a separate room and away from others in your home. Avoid sharing personal household items such as dishes, utensils, towels, or bedding. Wash these items thoroughly after using them. And clean all surfaces that are touched often, like counters and doorknobs, every day. To learn more, visit cdc.gov.
0: All right, and we're back. So, wanted to uh, dive into the other really big news that occurred over the past, uh, actually two weeks, but came to a culmination this past week, and that was the nomination or confirmation hearings for uh, Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson and in her bid to become the first black female to sit on Supreme Court of the United States of America. Now, you know, uh, chills and, and tingles for all of the history uh, which that portends aside, and, and I by no means diminish the fact of the, the supremely historic nature uh, that such an appointment would mean. Um, this show is about the mechanics of our political system. And once again, in, in looking at the confirmation of a potential Supreme Court justice, uh, we see how that political system uh, plays uh, in in very clear fashion. Um, If you've been listening to the accounts or you listen to the confirmation hearings uh, themselves, and I got to listen to a a small portion of them as they occurred mostly during the day when I was at work and and my ability to listen uh, was somewhat limited. Um, But from what I've read and from what I heard in, uh, what I've seen in the media, um, I, you know, have like so many people, uh, been unable to avoid making the comparisons to the, uh, the last three nominations, uh, or or confirmations to the court, uh, that being, um, you know, Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Barrett, and Justice Gorsuch, um. You know, it, it is highly evident. And if you're any kind of a student of political um, machines and political theater, um, you need go no further than to watch the Senate con- confirmation hearings of these, these judges and of uh, Judge Jackson. And you come away with. The sense that everything's, you know, is theater. Everything is is theatrics. It's all about the optics. Um, There were a lot of comparisons in the hearings for uh, for Judge uh, Jackson, and comparing to the hearings for uh, for Judge Brett Kavanaugh, where you really can't compare the two, you know, forget all the obvious reasons of gender and race, but the, the carriage of, you know, Brett Kavanaugh in his hearing, when you contrast that with how judge Jackson carried herself in her hearing. And even when you look at the confirmation hearings of, uh, justice Gorsuch and, um um justice amy coney barrett uh you clearly see a very sharp distinction uh, you know as i listened to you know the the segments of the hearings that i could in fact listen to uh invariably i heard uh the the formula uh that that played out as follows with um you know, opening statement by the senator, and, and in particular for the, for the next few minutes, I'm going to be talking about the Republicans on the committee. Um, were, you know, the, the opening statements were, you know, lofty and flowery praises for her accomplishments and for the history of the moment and, you know, all that, you know, her uh, potential appointment to the bench would mean for uh, for this country and so forth and so on and then it would you know degrade into the questions that they were asking uh, some of which to be true were indeed uh, relevant questions about components of her record uh, discussions of her judicial decisions uh, questions to her about her views on the Constitution and various points of law and you know and all of that but there was an undercurrent there of um, I want to call it animosity with a small a uh, simply that you know it, 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 they, they're this again particularly in the case of the Republicans they were looking uh, to to uh, to pick at you know some of these things that were uh, decisions or cases that she had judged or uh, actions that she had taken as a public defender, um, and the kind of questions they asked, particularly uh, are around her her decisions and her actions as a as a federal public defender, uh, that seemed to me to look to be a way to find something uh, on which to hang a no vote Uh, and then we came to the issue of decisions that she had made in cases involving child pornography and you know several of the republicans just went you know you know all in on on trying to build these decisions up into this, this monstrous thing. Um, there are a couple of, of things and Politico had a very good article on uh, the, the hearings and I were talking about nine potential Senate swing votes. I'm going to do it, some excerpts uh, of, you know, some of the things that were said, um, you know, but it, it's clear, you know, number one, and something you have to keep in mind, when she was confirmed to the appellate bench, it was on a bipartisan vote, and there were three Republican votes. And this was just last year, and the the three people or, or three of the people who confirmed her uh, were, you know, part of the committee we have now. Um, are now. You know, giving pause as to whether or not they will support her uh, for the Supreme Court, even though the same issues existed when she was, you know, and a a uh, a designee for the appellate court, which is the next level below the Supreme Court. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's clear that that there is a game being played. You know, we talk about that often on this show. But nowhere has that been more evident in what I heard in, in these hearings and what I've read uh, in these hearings. And even Politico goes in and say, you know, some Republicans recently suggested that they're torn between supporting Jackson's historic nomination and voting no based on opposition to her judicial philosophy. A few in the, that group are retiring this year, freeing them from the political consequences of backing her nomination, although a vote to confirm Jackson would royal the GOP primaries currently underway to replace them. So even though you know some of these um, these senators are retiring and basically you know have no skin in the game as, as far as repercussions from their party go or, or from their constituents would go, uh, are still uh, under, the, the sword of what would happen should they vote uh, you know, should they vote in favor of her um, you know it, it uh, again this is the game that is played uh, you know when you can in, in one year vote for a person uh, for a similar position you know at, at a lower level at the appellate level instead of at the supreme court level but a, a um, lifetime appellate appo- uh, appointment, uh, as opposed to a lifetime Supreme Court appointment, uh, where all of a sudden what was good then is no longer good now. Uh, you know, to me, that that raises something of a, a, a foul odor. Uh, you know, and it, it, it's clear that. The Democrats um, appear to have all 50 of their members on board. So, you know, Republican votes are not 100% necessary, but they're a guarantee in case we see something like we've seen over the last 18 months with, um, you know, the the mansion cinema effect where, you know, two Democrats peel off and and leave the farm so having some republican supports just make sure that they can still cross that 50, 50 vote threshold in order for her to be confirmed um so you know among the republicans that politico uh profiled here and as i said there are nine of them um senator linda lisa murkowski uh from alaska One of the three GOP senators who voted to confirm Jackson to the DC circuit court of appeals last year, making her one of the closest watched votes uh, once the nominations get to the floor. Um, Murkowski said Jackson's sentencing record on child pornography cases is, quote, worth looking into, close quote, but that she wants to understand whether or not it's a pattern before she determines its effect on her vote. Now. Let's, let's dive into that for a quick second. Murkowski is saying she wants to know whether or not it's a pattern. This question was posed during the, uh, the hearings, and um, Judge Jackson responded to it very clearly in that there, there can be no pattern. Each of these cases is a standalone event and has to be judged on the specific merits of that case as a standalone event. It's not like you can go, oh, well, I voted no on the last case, or the last two cases, or the last six cases, so I've got to vote no on this one, or I've got to, you know, I've got to convict on this one. That's not how our system is supposed to work. Now, to her credit, Senator Murkowski did make the distinction of saying, quote, if it really is a pattern, that's something I think we should be paying attention to. If it's an issue of one-offs that have been hyped into more than that i think that's something we need to try to discern so you know the 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 signal there is clear that if these uh decisions on these cases involving child pornography uh the republicans are are perhaps looking to paint those into a pattern of acting that would impact uh her role on the bench now we heard that same argument from the other direction during, during the, 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 the Gorsuch-Kavanaugh-Barrett hearings uh, from the Democrat side. Um, if, if you voted this way in the past, what's to make us think you're not going to vote that way consistently going into the future on a number of issues? Uh, again, game played, both sides, equally guilty. Um You know, they they also talked with uh, Senator Susan Collins of Maine, um, you know, and she's widely viewed as the most likely Republican to support Jackson's nomination to the Supreme Court. And, you know, Democrats obviously are pushing hard for her vote. She's been she's had several calls with President Biden uh, and, you know, and and has has been heavily played by the Democratic uh, administration to vote in favor. Uh, Senator Mitt Romney, uh, he criticized the idea that Jackson's sentencing record record is disqualifying and said, quote, my heart would like to be able to vote for her confirmation, although he still may be a tough sell. Um, You know, Romney is, is playing it close to the vest. He's not revealing his cards. And he says uh, his vote will be his ultimate word on the matter. And then we come to Senator Lindsey Graham. Now, Lindsey Graham, in, in my opinion, has a history and record of hypocrisy that, that puts him in, in the top echelon of uh, Republican senators who flip-flop on the issues and, and, and go back and forth depending on which way the wind's blowing. Um, Senator Graham was once viewed as one of the most likely Republicans to support the pick, but while Graham supported Jackson's nomination to the DC circuit last year, he instead pushed for his home state district judge, J. Michelle Childs, who was also one of Biden's uh, finalists, uh, to replace uh, retiring Justice Breyer. Since Biden announced Jackson's nomination, Graham has sent strong signals he will vote against her. So, you see the pattern here? It's okay for me to vote for you to play in that, that D.C. district backyard. But if you're talking about coming up to, you know, to the big plantation, um, that's another matter. Um, you know, it, it's clear, and I heard some of Senator Graham's uh, questioning of Judge Jackson. And you know, he was uh, the, the, uh, among the toughest questioners. Uh, that she faced. Uh, he engaged her in tense exchanges about her sentencing record on child pornography and asked about past judicial fights, including the confirmation hearings for now Justice Brett Kavanaugh and the Democrats filibuster of appellate court nominee Jan- uh, Janice Rogers Brown, who is also a black woman. Uh, Graham has said to stay tuned on how he'll vote. Uh, but, you know, the, the the tea leaf readers are saying there's little little evidence that he will support Jackson's nomination. Again, there, there's a level of uh, hypocrisy here that uh, rises you know above the surface. Uh, Republican Roy Blunt of Missouri uh, says you know he's struggling with the nomination, says that he doesn't want to rush his decision, and again thinks her sentencing record is a legitimate line of questions questioning. Um, but he also said that given her family's history of serving in law enforcement, he's also concluded that Jackson doesn't sound like a soft on crime person. Uh, Republican Rod Portman of Ohio, uh, he has been meticulously following the debate, even, even to the point of keeping a staffer in the hearing room to monitor colleagues' questions uh, you know, and, and give him feedback on what's being asked and so forth. Um, you know it, again, It indicate all the indications are saying that it will be tough for him to vote for, uh, for her as well Republican Senator Richard Burr uh, of North Carolina not exactly a moderate swing vote but he's also got plenty of surprises up his sleeve, again according to Politico uh, Burr and ended up voting to convict former President Donald Trump in his 2021 impeachment trial so it's worth keeping an eye on how he's vote but again he's playing his cards close to the vest uh and you know it it's it's clear that you know he's keen uh he's a key player and we'll just have to wait and see how his vote goes um and then we come to joe manchin uh you know senator manchin of west virginia said that he would support jackson likely guaranteeing her ultimate confirmation um in, in a statement, Manchin said that he is, quote, confident Judge Jackson is supremely qualified and has the dis, dis, uh, disposition necessary to serve as our nation's next Supreme Court justice. So, you know, the, the, the Manchin question seems to have been answered. Uh, we then, you know, move across to the other component of the Manchin Cinema uh, show uh, Senator Kristen Cinema of Arizona uh, she met with uh, Judge Jackson earlier for a productive sit down and suggested she would not make a decision until after the hearings but Democrats are confident that she'll support the nomination in the end given that she's backed every Biden judicial nominee including Jackson's nomination for the D.C. Circuit so it looks like Manchin and Cinema are you know, in the camp and If that is the case, that would likely give the Democrats the 50 votes that they clearly need uh, to confirm with uh, the the vote. If it's a tie, if it's a 50 50, Uh, obviously, Vice President Harris is going to vote with the party and uh, confirm Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson to the Supreme Court. So, you know, the the likelihood that she is going to be confirmed is strong but it is not an absolute lock but at the end of the day i i do believe that she is going to be confirmed and i i think we will end up seeing something like a 52 48 vote in favor of her confirmation to the bench uh where we will get a a couple of republican senators to cross over uh the number might be higher i don't know but you know um I will I will cautiously say that she will end up with 52 votes in favor of her confirmation. And you know, like many of you, I will celebrate that day. Um, want to pose a question to to my listener friends over in the UK uh, via our, our good friends at Mint Wave Radio. Um, I'd love to hear, what your perspective is on this if, if you've been following uh, the nominations and you know the, some of the other stories that I cover here on fired up. Uh, please please I invite you send email to firedupradio at yahoo.com. Let me know what you think. Give me your perspective uh, from over in the UK as to how you see it uh, and you know perhaps how this compares with the process that's in place. You know in the United Kingdom for you know placing you know the the equivalent of your highest court judges uh, in positions Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts and and perhaps have discussion on that so you know finally I I think as I say I think we are going to see um, Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson confirmed um, and While it is not going to change the numeric count of the Supreme Court, it will still be 6-3, I think she is going to bring uh, an interesting perspective to the court. Uh, And her experience, particularly her prosecutorial experience and her public defender experience, I think is going to give a a depth of, uh, of uh, you know discussion and understanding uh, from a different perspective than is typical uh, from justices that we currently have on the bench and ones that we've had in the, in the recent past, with the possible exception of you know Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, I, I I look forward to. To hearing her influence on the arguments and the questions and the decisions, and and you know, reading uh, excerpts from you know her participations in in the decisions of the court, and again, should she be confirmed, uh, I, I think it will be most interesting to see what impact she will bring to the court. I remind everyone to think that when Justice Gorsuch was uh confirmed to the supreme court uh the conservative uh republican party um, thought they had an absolute uh champion on their side on the court and uh at least three of his first decisions he first participated in he actually uh opposed against the conservative point of view Uh, So nothing is cast in stone with how a Supreme Court justice votes uh, once they get, you know, confirmed to the post. It all depends on, you know, their interpretation of the Constitution, their understanding of the facts, their understanding of the case. And if they are, uh, and, and it's almost cliche to say so, but if they are true to their convictions, how they will vote on a particular case. You can't automatically assume that a, a justice appointed and confirmed in a conservative uh, uh, scenario is going to be a conservative all the time. Uh, they will try to vote with what the law tells them, what the law guides them to vote. Um, and you know it, it will be interesting to see how Justice Jackson um, changes the, the 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 flavor of the court's decisions. How her uh, experience and how her understanding and interpretation will help, uh, perhaps temper some of the you know more conservative members of the bench. And will strengthen and support some of the more liberal members of the bench, uh, depending upon the case before them. Again, I, I expect that uh, from, from what I've heard of you know, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, that uh, she is going to be true to her convictions. She is going to be uh, very much uh, true to the, the intention of the founders and the Constitution. And her interpretations will flow along those lines. So, you know, it, it's, it's going to be an exciting time. Um, it will be interesting to see uh, the reactions around the political circles, um, should she be ultimately confirmed. Uh, it will be interesting to hear the reactions uh, of the Republican senators, uh, of the Democratic senators. It will be interesting To hear the reactions from, you know, various leaders in the parties, you know, it it should be noted that uh, minority leader Mitch McConnell initially praising Judge Jackson on her record, on her accomplishments, on her abilities, uh, has flipped 180 degrees and is now Uh, One of the cheerleaders leading this um, this anti Jackson rant revolving around her decisions in child pornography and and so forth that, you know, he has turned 180 degrees, at least in his public pronouncements about um, Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson. So, you know, what what is your perspective on it out there? What do you think um, should she be confirmed as a justice, as an associate justice of the Supreme Court of the United States? Uh, what do you think that means? What what is that going to to herald? Um, is it going to have a a large impact on the court? Um, you know, I I I don't anticipate that you know, the, the court is overnight going to change its stripes from a predominantly conservative leaning to a, a progressive, uh, a centrist court. However, you know, she may be that compelling argument that helps move that needle more toward, uh, that, that progressive centrist, uh, mindset that we've seen in the Supreme Court, you know, uh, Going back, you know, over the past you know, 20, 30 years. So, remains to be seen. But, in either event, it, we, are, we are seeing another moment in history. Uh, we will actually uh, end up with some pretty interesting demographics on the court as well. Uh, we're going to have four women. Uh, we're going to have three uh, ethnic minorities between just Judge Jackson, she should become Justice Jackson, uh, Justice Sotomayor and Justice Thomas. Um, and, you know, it, it's going to be some interesting dynamics at play uh, in the Supreme Court going forward. So uh, let's keep our fingers crossed. Uh, we send good thoughts to uh, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. Hopefully we get to change that to justice. Ketanji Brown Jackson Uh, I think that her appointment and confirmation to the court uh, is going to be nothing but a positive element even in a conservative court uh, her voice uh, will you know carry some weight uh, more weight than others depending on the case Uh, just as we've seen with Gorsuch uh, even Kavanaugh has surprised us from time to time so you know nothing is nothing is cast in stone we will see how it goes. All right, we'll, uh, we'll wrap it up there. Thank you, everyone, for bringing my podcast to you. I appreciate it. Look for another Fired Up podcast to hit your sources in seven days. Take care, everybody. Stay safe. <laughs>